You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to Islam, the real truth about the religion of peace on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is our guest, Dr. Sergio Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you again. Today, our topic is going to be focused on jihad and the caliphate. And I'll start by what, what goes for poetry in the Islamic world. Our flowers are the sword and the dagger. Narcissus and myrtle are not. Our drink is the blood of our foemen. Our goblet his skull when we fought. Who is that author and what is the significance in relation to jihad? Uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib uh, only put into words what had been the pre-Islamic sentiment of uh, the Arab tribesmen. It was a Hobbesian society which uh, uh, provided one with uh, both status and relative safety only if uh, the person and the tribe to which that person belonged had the wherewithal the power to withstand the threats from others. And uh, in that Hobbesian mindset, uh, the ability to uh, fight for uh, your status and for what you regarded as your rights and to defeat your enemies was the alpha and omega of uh, survival. Now, what uh, uh, Muhammad did was to infuse this warlike mindset and this readiness to spill blood and to use extreme violence in pursuit of one's objectives uh, to give it meaning, to give it purpose, and to even make it divinely ordained. So he described the three most important works a man could perform as faith per se. It is, of course, the Alpha and Omega. War in the path of Allah and the blameless pilgrimage. Now, war in the path of Allah uh, is effectively what we mean by by jihad. It is expansionism, as uh, Ibn Warak, uh, uh, an Islamic apostate who has written many books, including uh, the seminal one, Why I'm Not Muslim, described as expansionism denuded of any concrete objective brutal and born of a necessity in its past. However, I wouldn't say that it is entirely denuded of any concrete objective because uh, in uh, cosmic terms, in meta-historical terms, uh, Islam postulates uh, the existence of the world of war and the world of faith. The world of war, uh, Dar uh, al-Harb, is the area uh, which is not subject to Sharia. In other words, the important distinction is not necessarily non-Muslim, but not subject to Sharia. And uh, sooner or later, the whole world will be and should be. And for as long as this is not the case, jihad must continue. Uh, When and how it will be proclaimed is a somewhat moot point. For instance, uh, with uh, the disappearance of the even nominal caliphate uh, with the the end of the Ottoman Empire in in the early 1920s, 
Orthodox Muslims would say that there can be no uh, legitimate or uh, Quranically valid jihad because there is no caliph. Uh, the Islamic State uh, tried to revive the caliphate and that's why territorial base was so important to them and al-Baghdadi, who by the way uh, is also a descendant of the Quraysh tribe, uh, claimed that with the re-establishment of the, uh, uh, the Quranically valid and uh, Sharia compliant state, uh, calling the Jihad was possible yet again. But uh, what Muhammad did was to imbue his followers with an ideological justification for wars which would have occurred anyway, but which would have been based on the random quest for loot and women and camels. And this way they acquired a fundamental uh, validity which provided a huge moral impetus and made uh, the Arabs capable of first contemplating the conquest of uh, the Holy Land and the surrounding areas to the west all the way to the Iberian Peninsula, to the east all the way to the Indus Valley, eventually to, to the north all the way to the gates of Vienna. So uh, the view of uh, contemporary Islamic activists that Islam must rule the world and until it does so uh, they will continue to sacrifice their lives uh, which was uh, the statement by uh, a spokesman for Al-Badr on CNN some years ago, is neither extreme nor uh, uh, does it depart from the tenets of traditional Islam. It has been divinely sanctioned from the moment uh, Muhammad established his safe base in Medina. And uh, this is what the Quran says in uh, chapter 8. O Prophet, rouse the believers to the fight. Twenty Muslims, patient and persevering, will vanquish two hundred unbelievers. If a hundred, they will vanquish a thousand. Allah further orders the faithful to fight the unbelievers and be firm of them, uh, with them, and I quote, and slay them wherever ye catch them, and turn them out from where they have turned you out for tumult and oppression are worse than slaughter." End of quote. And the end of the fight is possible only when there prevails justice and faith in Allah. And I should add, everywhere. In other words, when the whole world has become converted, or at least it has come under the rule of Sharia. And in this sense, again, there is a remarkable similarity between uh, Islam and Bolshevism, because Bolshevism also postulated especially with Stalin's theory of socialism in one country, uh, the world uh, where revolution has come to fruition and where the working class has become the master of its destiny, where conflict between the owners of the means of production and the proletarians who have nothing to lose by their chains has been overcome, and the belief that eventually uh, through either revolution or conquest, which we witnessed in closing stages of World War II, uh, socialism will spread and sooner or later the whole world will be ruled by 
the vanguard of the working class embodied in the Leninist style party. I mean, I, I think your, your relation to Bolshevism is useful insofar as the consummation devoutly to be wished for, for that, uh, the idea of the whole world coming, coming along, is, is actually not an end that, it's an end that would somewhat end the movement. You can't separate conflict from Bolshevism. So we get to this mythical future where the whole world has converted, well then what? It's the same thing. Islam and jihad are inseparable. So we get to this mythical future where the whole world becomes Islamic. Would jihad is going to disappear from Islam? Uh, so these 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 goals seem to be mythical. In, in that there's no real desire to get there because you're going to remove a fundamental plank of the the belief system. If conflict is a a major part of Bolshevism, is if jihad is a major part of Islam. You don't really want those things to ever go away. Well, uh, I wouldn't say that this is uh, necessarily a conscious element in either Bolshevik or Islamic mindset, uh, but uh, implicitly both objectives are eschatological. And uh, in terms of the Islamic historical practice, uh, there is no doubt that uh, the belief that it is both right and divinely sanctioned to fight the infidel in pursuit of the extension of the world of faith at the expense of the world of war was a motivating factor, especially, I I repeat, in the early centuries when uh, uh, the lust for conquest and loot was uh, intertwined with uh, genuine religious uh, fanaticism, as witnessed, for instance, by uh, the ranks of uh, 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 the Janissaries fighting uh, before the walls of Malta or Famagusta or uh, Constantinople itself. Later on, uh, just as Bolshevism degenerated into Khrushchevism and uh, and Brezhnevism, likewise. Uh, the Islamic zeal, uh, after particularly after the defeat uh, at the gates of Vienna in 1683, uh, degenerated into simple attempt to hold what could be saved of a declining and uh, eternally divided empire. Uh, but I wouldn't say that uh, in terms of motivation for the rank and file and even for the leaders, there was any conscious acceptance of the impossibility of meta-historical realization of the ultimate objective. The fact that that objective was in some distant future and that one would not uh, experience it and enjoy its fruits personally is neither here nor there. But in, in terms of, for instance, the discourse of the early Bolshevik leaders, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Trotsky, and and others, uh, they did believe, I think, that uh, even in in their immediate future, uh, there would be, if not world-level revolution, certainly European one. And that's why, for instance, we are now approaching 100th anniversary of the Peace of Brest-Litovsk, which was imposed on the Bolsheviks by the Germans in March 1918. And uh, the Bolsheviks accepted huge territorial losses of 
today's Baltic republics, Belarus, Ukraine, Georgia, and so on, uh, for the simple reason they believe that within months, a year at most, there would be proletarian revolution in Germany itself and uh, in, in uh, West European countries, which will make all these temporary gains moot, and after all, the borders between nations and states will disappear anyway. Uh, in the early centuries of the Islamic expansion, both eastward and westward, I think that this eschatological uh, objective may have seemed much more likely, much more realistic prospect than later on, when it became at least implicitly uh, accepted that this is more a metaphor than, uh, than a, a realistic scenario. And when you refer to eschatology, is there any sense that if this is achieved, then this will trigger some sort of end-of-time scenario? For Christians, we have a, a sense, we, we don't know when the hour or the day will be, but there will be a day of judgment and the end of the world will ensue. Does Is there some similar parallel with, with Islam that if if the, the Dar al-Harb manages to, uh, sorry, the Dar al-Islam manages to conquer all of the remaining Dar al-Harb, Will this then trigger some sort of end-of-the-world scenario? No, there is no correlation uh, in uh, uh, the authoritative texts, and uh, it would be uh, at least implicitly heretical to suggest that uh, achieving uh, the victory of, of Sharia in this world would somehow prompt the Almighty to uh, kick in the end-of-the-world scenario on the other. Uh, Islam does have uh, the notion of the day of judgment and uh, uh, the end of the world, but not necessarily cor correlated to any specific set of events in this world. When, when we use the term jihad today and it's discussed, whether it's on the major news networks or even in a casual discussion with a westernized Muslim, the retort will always be, well, of course, Dr. Trivkic, we understand jihad to be something internal. It has nothing to do with necessarily going out and, and these slaughters. So is there any way in this that this can be said to be true? When, it, when a Muslim is saying this, is there any way that this, this can be said to be true, or is it simply obfuscation? Uh, it is what uh, the Arabic word, uh, word takia denotes, uh, which is the art of dissimulation before the unbeliever in uh, pursuit of the objectives of the faith. Uh, because the spiritual dimension of jihad as the inner struggle against one's sinful thoughts and desires is... Uh, also present, but uh, it is secondary to the tangible uh, violent and bloody jihad. And uh, once the objectives of uh, the primary meaning of jihad are attained, then you may well afford to focus on this more contemplative inner jihad. Yet there is no doubt what Muhammad meant by the war in the path of Allah and what was the historical understanding of that term, both uh, at the time of the conquest of uh, today's Egypt and Libya and Algeria and Spain, 
in one direction, uh, which went on all the way to Tours in France, where Charles Martel defeated the Muslim armies in 732 AD, and uh, uh, the wars that resulted in the conquest of Persia and uh, uh, most of today's India in the eastern direction, and uh, then uh, striking into the heart of Europe later on. So the notion that uh, primary understanding of, of jihad is that of the spiritual struggle for one's moral improvement is a lie. It is a deliberate, conscious and uh, uh, brazen lie used by people who know the truth and yet uh, also believe that it is right and proper and even divinely ordained to lie to uh, the sucker infidels uh, in order to obfuscate and, uh, and uh, uh, to throw uh, a smoke screen before uh, the true nature of the beast. Uh, at least we don't have any such dilemmas with uh, the members of the Islamic State or Al-Nusra Front or Taliban or Al-Qaeda or any other number of very mainstream jihadist organizations all over the Sunni Muslim world. Well, and I, I see it as a, a that idea of the internal jihad as this hipster reinvention of Islam as an ascetical religion in which you are constantly where they would have nuns and monks, uh, but we don't see any sort of equivalent. Uh, there, there, there are no Muslims off in the desert working on their self-improvement. Uh, something of that may be present in uh, the Sufi uh of Islam, but of course Sufism is regarded as heretical by uh, the Orthodox Sunni and Shia alike. So to say that uh, there is a, an inter interesting both mystical and contemplative element in Sufism would be uh, as illustrative of mainstream Islam as to claim that Anabaptists, for instance, provide uh, an interesting model of, of Christian social and political organization. Interesting might be a strong word. Now, something else I've come across in your writings, Dr. Fuchs, that I really wasn't familiar with, and it was somewhat hilarious for me to run across, was this idea of ecumenical jihad. And I didn't even know that this existed, and, and perhaps it was more limited to the time period where there was an advisor to, to George W. Bush who, who believed in this. Can you tell our listeners, what is ecumenical jihad, and is it an idea that still has some, some supporters, or has it fallen away since the, the times of, of President Bush? Well, uh, it was the strange notion that uh, uh, believers belonging to different traditions and uh, religions should unite against uh, the secularized and uh, uh, sometimes militantly atheistic or at best agnostic world at large. And uh, uh, the advisor of President George W. Bush that you refer to is uh, a professor, uh, university professor by the name of David Forte, who wrote, and I quote, if we will work and fight and love in action side by side with our Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox and Jewish and Muslim neighbors, we will come to perceive something we did not understand before. 
if we did not balk at having Stalin's followers as our allies against Hitler, we should not balk at having Muhammad's followers as our allies against Stalin. End of quote. Now, this is uh, a remarkable statement because, first of all, uh, he puts in uh, the same basket Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, i.e. Christians, with Jews and Muslims, and also the parallel with the anti-Hitler alliance uh, seems to omit the fact that all along one of the key parties in that alliance, in fact the, uh, the power that most uh, contributed the most to the defeat of Germany, Stalin's Soviet Union, all along treated its Western allies as uh, temporary partners of necessity and convenience. And that already by the end of 1943, the Tehran conference, Stalin was uh, planning for the post-war order in Europe, in which the Soviet Union would substantially increase its uh, domain, its influence, and its power. And uh, when after the defeat of Germany, uh, we would go back to uh, the uh, dichotomy, the kind of dualistic Manichaean us and them uh, paradigm of who gets whom, uh, as Lenin memorably put it, kto koga, who gets whom, meaning who will kill whom. And uh, uh, this uh, hope that somehow people who are believers can enter a dialogue which will then produce uh, some understanding where uh, there will be a degree of give and take, has been the constant obsession of uh, liberal Christians for some decades, and yet uh, that dialogue has never yielded a single concession on the Muslim side, whether in terms of doctrine, which is unimaginable, or even in terms of uh, the understanding and interpretation of political events in the past or present. In fact, that uh, so-called dialogue has resulted in all kinds of concessions uh, on the part of uh, the Christian partakers in it, including the readiness to uh, accept the possibility of a specifically Muslim form of salvation outside the acceptance of Christ, uh, which is, of course, uh, a matter for the fringe, but also uh, backtracking on uh, the firm position taken by Pope Benedict on uh, the uh, fundamental irrationality of Islam or of the Islamic concept of, of God, uh, his famous Regensburg address, under Pope Francis, this has been considerably softened. And uh, only a few days ago, I was in Cologne, where the famous cathedral, one of the most magnificent such buildings in, in the world, uh, was all uh, kept in the dark for one night uh, some years ago, because on that day in Cologne, Pegida, which is a German popular movement uh, for, it literally, uh, the acronym stands, Movement for the Prevention of Islamization of Germany, had its demonstration and convention in Cologne. So they did not switch off the lights 
when on New Year's Eve uh, 2016, uh, there was an orgy of violence at Cologne's railway station when young Muslim men uh, mistreated and uh, harassed about a hundred uh, young German women, some of whom were raped and others robbed. And uh, this event was uh, uh, supposed to be kept secret. It's only two days later that the media learned the truth and reluctantly let the cat out of the bag. No, on that occasion, uh, the, the Cologne Cathedral was still brightly lit. But when Muslim skeptic Germans converged in Cologne to demonstrate and to speak up, then the lights were switched off. The problem is that uh, ecumenical jihad appeals to uh, the postmodern mind and uh, uh, by implication also to uh, the postmodern liberals in uh, the Christian ecclesiastical establishment in the West, particularly, for instance, uh, the Lutherans in Scandinavia, uh, who uh, are perfectly willing to make fundamental compromises compromises of the kind that would have been considered heretical by any yardstick in uh, uh, the paradigm of traditional Christianity. Uh, the fact that, for instance, the Church of England has become, <laughs> traditionally it was described by uh, the Tories, uh, by, by uh, uh, some of its critics, as the Tory party at prayer. Yeah. Uh, nowadays we can uh, describe it as the social workers at collective therapy. And uh, uh, the crisis of Western Christianity is really the crisis of faith. And uh, the syndrome of uh, disbelief which afflicts the society at large has not found uh, its counter in the established ecclesiastical structures, quite the contrary, some of its most hearty promoters are to be found there. Your description of the Church of England reminds me of a Yes Minister episode in which uh, the Prime Minister is being lectured on, on how you appoint uh, an Archbishop of, of Canterbury, that he needs to have certain liberal bona fides and certain socialist tendencies in order to actually, he doesn't necessarily, and I'm reminded of Louis XVI's rejection of one of his cousins for Archbishop of Paris saying, you must at least believe in God to be the Archbishop of Paris. Well, nowadays uh, one could almost say that being an agnostic is part of the job description of uh, a trendy bishop in uh, the Western Protestant world. Well, and also this idea that some religion is better than no religion seems to be... I want to say it's something that could only hatched out of the United States, this non-confessional state that, that defines itself as religious because a lot of people go to church. It doesn't matter necessarily what they believe, they're all somewhere on Sunday. Uh, this, this ecumenical jihad idea, was it something that was really centered in the United States or did it have advocates in, in Europe as well? Oh, in Europe, absolutely, uh, because uh, it was really in Europe that uh, this mania for uh, dialogue with Islam emerged in the 70s and the 80s, well before uh, the problem of uh, Islamic violence and jihadism 
as a world phenomenon emerged uh, following the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan. But uh, the fundamental error is rooted in the claim that Allah is more, more or less interchangeable with God of other monotheistic faiths. And uh, as we discussed before, Islamic understanding of Allah borders on pantheism, because if he is ultimately the only actor who completely commands our thoughts and actions, and uh, we are simply the transmission of his omnipresent and omnipotent will, then we are looking at something uh, bordering on, uh, at best, as I said, pantheism, and uh, maybe on uh, something more akin to cults which would, even by liberal Christian theologians, be considered satanic. Is this idea something that has survived the crashing of vehicles into people and, and barriers, or uh, was it an idea that has faded over time? Uh, well, oddly enough, uh, the more violence we have uh, from Islamic fanatics, uh, the greater determination of the liberal establishment to uh, persevere in its insistence that we will not be moved, we will, uh, we will remain true to our notions of tolerance, multiculturalism, inclusion, and all the rest of it. In fact, it was only two days ago, uh, or three days ago, on, on the 1st of January, that a new set of laws came into force in Germany, which forces providers of uh, internet uh, social networks to exercise self-censorship in what messages they allow or uh, do not allow or delete, in particular vis-à-vis -vis the so-called hate speech laws, which in the German case are defined very loosely and uh, in such a draconian way that, for instance, if Facebook uh, does not remove a message uh, critical of Angela Merkel's uh, migrant policy, if it can be even remotely construed as implying antagonism to the migrants, then they can be fined, they meaning the providers, millions and millions of euros. Uh, uh, and uh, of course, the fact that uh, the state mandates that they themselves exercise due diligence and remove such messages before they come to the attention of the state is accompanied by a form on uh, uh, the, uh, the, the state website where anyone offended by a message found on one of uh, uh, the social networks can be reported, which means that uh, there will be tens of thousands of Muslims uh, resorting to this device every time they see anything that can be even remotely construed as uh, something in the spirit of uh, the sword of the prophet, uh, not to mention the actual wording of the sword of the prophet that would be definitely verboten. Well, and I think that's probably a good place for us to end uh, this first part in, in a, a two-part mini-series within our, our ongoing discussion of, of jihad and the caliphate. In our next episode, we're going to discuss uh, how jihad is, was, was waged in the early days of Islam and um, 
and how it expanded territorially. As always, thank you for your time, Dr. Trifkovic. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.